for August 10th, 2009, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 58. I know now why you floss. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the best coast, I am Matthew Rather, and I am, again, your host for this evening. And I am joined by a panel of podcasters to overthink the question of the week. Uh, And it is... What is it? I can't think. I'm I'm getting like surfer syndrome where I, you know, the sun is baking my brain. But it is glorious, <laughs> glorious sunshine. Uh, not a cloud in the sky out here at the moment. Uh, but, um, yes, uh, what summer movie did you miss that you either want to go back and see in the theater or that you will make sure to check out on video? Skyping in from Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hey, 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 it's Pete Fenzel. How's it going? (laughs) Yeah, okay, so in answer to your question, I think that there's really only one possible answer, and I would be shocked if uh, anybody were to come up with anything different, and that's going to be TP2. Uh, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants 2 I was not allowed to see The women in the theater drove me out they, there, there was a wave of estrogen That hit me in the face And physically lifted me up And repelled me back Towards the concession stand um, it, was like I, the it, it, it was like the end of the yeah. Bacchae it was like the end of the, it was like the end of return. It was the Empire Strikes Back. Is what it was. <laughs> Luke, I am a woman. No, I don't know how to handle like, that. What that right there was is, I'll see your nerd and raise you, dork. <laughs> I was, I was gonna say G Force, but you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with TP2 because that one glorious night where I watched Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and was, it was, I told you that story, right? Where like I was with my buddy and it was late at night, we're like, oh man, let's get drunk and watch Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and then we, uh, we didn't get drunk and we watched Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. <laughs> I'm like, it's a really good movie. Uh, <laughs> um, I'd love to repeat that someday, but the time and the place have not yet made themselves known to me. So. Um, much like the time travelers of the inevitable future, uh, it shall remain mysterious until its appointed arrival. All right. That is Peter Fenzel. And from, uh, from the BK, uh, no sleep till Mark Lee. I- I'm awake now. Oh, okay. Is, is there, you, there you go. No, no, no. I'm saying, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm delirious. I'm crazy. A podcast, and I don't even know what I'm saying. Mark Lee, what movie do you want to see? That's an easy answer. Um, G.I. Joe. Uh, granted, it'll only open this weekend, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to shell out 12 bucks to go see it in theaters because it is, in a word, ridiculous according to the uh, critical consensus. But I really want to see it for one reason and one reason only to compare it against Team America World Police. It's such an obvious comparison to make, right? Am I not right here? In terms of, you know, if it's an elite group of soldiers that, you know, are ostensibly American. Now, granted, I understand that the new G.I. Joe is some sort of multinational blah blah boo you know, to appeal to a you know, more worldwide audience. But the, the real reason why it's, it's an obvious comparison to Team America World Police is because they destroyed the, the uh, Eiffel Tower in that movie unironically, whereas in Team America World Police it happens decidedly ironically. 
So you have that touch point, you know, that, that starting off point there, and I just want to see where it all plays out. I haven't there. seen the movie, but isn't France the villain in, in that movie? <laughs> no, North Korea is the villain in that movie. It, no, I mean in, in G.I. Joe? Uh, I don't know. I mean, is, I, Cobra, I, is Cobra France? Yeah, I thought, or I thought they were based... Uh, uh, Cobra! <laughs> hey, we blow up the world, or we have a cigarette. I am not sure. Uh, life is merde. Um, All our French listeners were just like, that was so realistic. Oh my god. Do we have, do we have French listeners? Hey, if you're uh, in France, or somewhere in the Francophone world, like... Quebec, Quebec or parts of Africa <laughs> <laughs> Haiti yeah. if you are in the francophone world uh, drop us a line and send us your latitude and longitude uh, that is Mark Lee and I heard a voice that I don't often hear it's Mr. Jordan Stokes what's going on? I am I'm also, I'm, I'm, uh, also in Brooklyn just for people who are uh, keeping, keeping tabs and yet, do Brooklyn... you not sleep until you got there? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Brooklyn Actually, is, is, <laughs> Brooklyn is so crime. big, however, that it can contain both of your massive personalities. <laughs> kind of. I don't know. We're planning on uh, we're planning on having a showdown later on tonight, where we're going to settle once and for all which one of us has to move to Queens. Yeah, some, <laughs> someone's going to Queens. Uh, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Can I say, Jordan? It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I would go so far as to say that I'm stoked. Wait for it. <laughs> Wait for it. Stoked. So what movie do you want to see? Uh, I tell you, um, what I'd like to see is Terminator, uh, Rise, Rise of the Machines. Or wait, not Rise oh, of the Machines. never saw whatever, it. Whatever it's called. Salvation. You never, uh, you I, never, never saw I never saw it. And, I mean, here's the thing. I know from having talked uh, at great length to Mr. Lee that, uh, that it's apparently pretty bad. But it's one of those things where, like, I mean, it's like uh, having a root canal, right? That uh, if you need a root canal, you know it's going to be a painful experience. You know it's going to cost money that you'd rather not spend. But you know that sometime down the line, you're going to go ahead and have that root canal. And that's how I feel about, feel about the Terminator movie. That, like, I'm going to watch it eventually, so I might as well get it out of the way. That's true. And, like, the longer you wait, the worse the root canal is going to be because you could get infected <laughs> yeah. or whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Or like getting like your white spread to another tooth. Yeah, right. Exactly. You might need two root canals. I'm going to so, go I mean, on the list and say that Terminator, Terminator Salvation is a solid rental. I'm going to say. Because <laughs> as long as your expectations are like bargain basement, as long as you're not paying more than $3 for that movie, I think the robots that have robot motorcycles coming out of their arms are probably going to be pretty sweet. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, man. I was gonna. You should remind listeners that Jordan is also, you know, a, a Terminator fan of significant magnitude. Um, uh, Jordan, I don't know if you would call yourself as much of a fanboy as at least I purport to be. I would say that uh, I would say that Terminator is as important to my life as dental hygiene, if not more important. <laughs> 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 well played, sir. <laughs> I need your brush, your floss, and your mouth. <laughs> Can I tell us? <laughs> I know you floss every day, but it is something I can never do. <laughs> I know now why you floss. <laughs> um, can I tell a story about a root canal? 
please. I see no way of stopping you. <laughs> well, I've see, been waiting all this time on this podcast for this moment to happen. <laughs> I am. Um, so there I am uh, in the dentist chair getting a root canal, and I, I gather from the the explanation that my dentist gave me that they like they punch in through the top of the tooth, suck out or pull out or whatever the nerve which they call oh. pulp oh. for some reason, oh. right? Uh, that they use, they use a solvent, they use a liquid solvent and a file to widen the space where the nerve used to be and then fill that with an inert material uh, so, that, uh, so that it doesn't get infected, so that it doesn't develop an infection uh, if it's not infected Ooh. already. Anyway, so, um, so there I am sitting in the, in the chair and my root canal... What, the first of my life, a uh, month, a month and a half ago, was totally painless. I never, ever even felt it in my tooth because, you know, I got numbed up and I, you know, it, it just didn't really ache the next day. But, um, but as the, the guy, my dentist, is taking the syringe of nasty, nasty tooth solvent uh, out of my mouth and putting it back on his tray, it passes over my face and a drop spooges out of the end of it and lands square in my eye. Oh, and oh like, my God. and my my mouth is stuffed with cotton balls and you know the the like the rubber little tray that they put in so that they don't spill the nasty nasty solvent all over your stuff and so <laughs> I get you know and like I so I get solvent in my eye and so you know I can't talk and it's like ah ah and so I start screaming inarticulately and like pointing and waving at my eye and eventually he figures out what's going on and you know we flush it out with water but that was like the and that is the the most painful uh bit of dentistry I've ever had which is um <laughs> which is when wow. when the guy dropped his his burny burny acid into my eye it's like long story long story short I am now legally blind so uh... <laughs> I was, I was worried about Man, that, that is- and he was either really embarrassed or was either an asshole about it because he like he he didn't really say he was sorry or maybe they're worried maybe doctors are worried about liability or something in a in a situation like that. But like he never he never said like that when I came for the follow up appointment to check out that the root canal was okay. He wasn't even like, hey man, how's that eye? Like you know, mm-hmm. and and so and I moved three thousand miles across the country just to get away from that dentist. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, uh, my movie's Up. You haven't seen Up? You didn't see Up? No. God, sir. Moron. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Do something about that. Seriously. I didn't see Up, Public Enemies, or Bruno. And, uh, uh, or Harry Potter. And those, I think, are the four. I, w- I would like to see those four. The, the rest, meh. I, I, uh, I've seen what I want to see. But those four uh, are pretty good. Hey, you know who hates queens? Nora Ephron. She makes it. She she makes it look really terrible in the Julia Child movie, which I did see this weekend with my mother. Oh, how was that? I I thought the Meryl Streep was um was phenomenal, and uh, I I think it was a great movie about Julia Child and uh, and also a movie about a whiny annoying blogger from Queens. <laughs> uh, you know, has Queens been has Queens been been treated in any other? Film. I mean, I can think of well, one fantastic example off the top of my head. Well, yeah, there's that one wonderful, <laughs> wonderful moment where uh, the African prince needs to consider where in the world he's going to go <laughs> in order to find his bride. <laughs> and he, spin, right. and he spins around a globe, right? Or he looks at a map, and he's like, oh, Queens! 
and he goes to Queens, and a magical adventure unfolded. And if you listening do not know what I am talking about, you are legally required to, by any means necessary, probably by T-Bowing it, watch Coming to America, which is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful movie. Back when Eddie Murphy's movies were gold and had children in them that were also golden, but were gold themselves. Uh, any particular movie, mind you. But. Any movie that contains the line, the royal penis is clean, sire, uh, is okay in my book. <laughs> you like the first 15 minutes of that movie, don't you, man? You just turn it off. You watch the first 15 minutes of that movie again, right? No, it's... <laughs> I, the- I love... Uh, no, I really love it. Make me look normal, says Eddie Murphy, and they cut off his uh, they cut off his ponytail. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's on Netflix. Also, if you you know if you get movies that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if people who think that Eddie Murphy only makes crap need to go back and watch all of the awesome Eddie Murphy movies. No, Eddie like, Murphy. Oh, that, that's, yeah, that's only a recent development. Eddie Murphy only makes crap. Um, Pluto Nash, I think, is not. <laughs> Your body of yeah. work, yeah. Uh, the, the 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 nutty professor four, nuttier and professor er. <laughs> oh, too, I happen to uh... too nutty to professor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see Tokyo Drift. <laughs> yeah. I happened to uh, to catch I happened to catch Bowfinger on TV the other day, and it reminded me like what incredible comedic work both Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin are capable of. And it's not like that's that long ago, right? Like that's a pretty recent movie. But um, yeah, Bowfinger. either late nineties or early two thousands. But well into the it was when certainly when Eddie Murphy had already started to veer off into crap territory, and probably somewhere around Steve Martin was starting to do the same thing as well. Um, I will say that Eddie Murphy, to his credit, um, did turn in a ve- an excellent performance in Dreamgirls um, in terms of acting as well as his musical singing ability as well, um, which seems unfortunately to be an exception to the, the current norm of Pluto Nash. And what was the, the, uh, the newest one that he has coming out where his, his, his daughter like, predicts uh, the stock market movements and things like that? Imagine that. Oh, imagine that. Imagine. There you go. <laughs> no. <laughs> Man, Eddie, Eddie Murphy no wait, this is a great idea Eddie Murphy should make all the movies that Nick Cage is currently making and vice versa I would love amazing. to see a, a Nick Cage <laughs> I'm a nutty professor I'm so nutty I would love to watch Eddie Murphy gone in 60 seconds he's like what <laughs> oh my god what do you mean we see the cars I ain't gonna see no car I can't see the car in 60 seconds that's crazy that's your talking crazy what are you Angelina Jolie with the blonde hair what are you doing that's <laughs> wow <laughs> you might have to redact some of that whoa <laughs> <laughs> no, never apologize. <laughs> never explain. Um, Steve Martin has been doing. Uh, you know, Eddie Murphy has yeah, kind of Robin Williams disease, right? Like where he was a great zany comedian, and then I don't know, he got serious. But he didn't get serious. He didn't get maudlin like Robin Williams did. He just got he got zany, but not comic. Mm. Steve Martin Panther. has been has been like writing, you know, articles in the New Yorker or something. He's become serious and like focusing on his banjo music. I'm not kidding. He, re- he released a record of banjo music. <laughs> but then he also makes like cheaper by the dozen parts one through oh, eight, right? Yeah, good point. I wasn't even thinking of of that. I, you know, he he wrote an autobiography that is 
really excellent that I highly recommend. It's called Born Standing Up, and I'll put a link in the show notes. And if you click on any of the links to Amazon on Overthinking It, we get like two pennies or something like that. And so, you know, click on, click on several. Buy all your Amazon stuff through overthinkingit.com. Anyway. I think uh, Eddie Murphy's big thing is he just made – he started making kid movies, right? Like he just he – made, he made Shrek – you know, in Mulan, and he just made a whole ton of, sh- of kid movies, and we judge him by his kid movies. Um, you know, uh, Meet Dave isn't for me, right? No, I don't. Like, mi- I don't mind. I, mean, I don't Norbit's mind. Uh, well, yeah, Norbit. We're not the audience for Norbit, but but yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I don't mind the kid movies. I, what I mind is the Eddie Murphy vehicles. You know, Meet the Clumps. You know, like that's right, those right. are the ones that are bad. Like Mulan was. Let's rewind back here. It's not just that Eddie Mercury is making kid movies. He's making bad kid movies, right? And, you know, going back to what we talked about before with Up, we've seen that you know, a kid movie doesn't have to be juvenile and, uh, and, and simple, right? You know, a, a movie that appeals to kids can have a large, larger appeal as well, too. It's not that, you know, making a kid, saying it's a kid movie is like saying it's a Michael Bay movie, that it somehow expresses I mean, a low-level low quality. Yeah, even... Even Shrek 1, while, I mean, a bit commercial, I, I bear Eddie Murphy no ill will for being in that. It's a fun movie. Yeah, it's great. Shrek 3. <laughs> well, everyone, by the time Shrek 3 rolls around, right, like, everyone has a little blood on their hands, I think. <laughs> I gotta say, Shrek 2 had one really hilarious gag where they, um, they, where Shrek and Donkey show up briefly on uh, the, you know, you know, Shrek is a hilarious story. It takes place in medieval times, and sometimes they talk about today times, right? So they, they show up on the analog for cops, which is called knights. And the hilarious thing about this is that it's a three. Oh, did we just lose Jordan? I think in we lost Jordan. The cops show. Oh, Jordan, oh, we uh, lost we lost everything you said. Uh, he's on <laughs> he's on knights, and and the hilarious thing about it is that it's a three. Oh, it's a 3D analog of, like, the grainy video you get when you actually watch Cops. Oh, funny. So they have it animated as if it was, like, you know, a 10-year-old animated movie. It's all... And we lost him again. And now he dropped off. So we will push on. Well, we wanted to... I think we got the joke. Did you understand the joke, Pete and Mark? Yeah, sure. The, uh, I, I, remember, I remember seeing it. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hilarious take on, uh, on, on the show Cops, right? And it's called Knights. I can't remember the specifics about it, but it did, that part did work very well. Well, no, the, the joke is that it's form and function, right? Is that they, they make it an analogy of uh, what it would be like in the world of DreamWorks to make, like, cops, right? They make it, like, uh, that style. of they, they dumb down the animation enough so that it looks like it's made of the same production quality, relatively speaking, as cops is to a more advanced television show. Right? Something like that? Yes. That is, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. the joke. We now yeah, have killed it. We now have taken well, all no, the humor out of the show. No, no, it might still be alive. Maybe if we turn it over on its side and we kick it in the face a few times, then we shoot it in the head. No, you see, it's Shrek, because you don't expect it to be saying things like that. You don't expect it to be making some sort of co- subtle commentary. So if you watch Cops, and then you watch Shrek, and then you see, is it, is it breathing? Is the joke still breathing? Hey, I think uh, I saw Twitch. Hey, <laughs> hey. I want to murder that joke. What? Hey, Pete. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> speaking of things that aren't alive anymore. Oh, oh no. <laughs> That's a bad segue. I'm sorry. That's I couldn't, I couldn't resist it. <laughs> Pete was talking about murdering the joke. And it's like, speaking of things that are dead, uh, beloved film director, John Hughes, uh, collapsed and died of a heart attack on his morning jog. 
in New York City where he was visiting friends or family. Uh, he was 59 and is, you know, the director of or, you know, the creative force behind the whole auteur behind The Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, uh, you know, and really made that. Those now those movies were all they were for teenagers when I was a kid, so I didn't see them until later, right? So it's well, not right. like yeah, yeah. Well, I, just, I had a history teacher who was a little bit older than I was, and all, and used to talk to us about the eighties when we asked him in high school, and he would say like, "Look, nobody saw Pretty in Pink in the theater." Like these these movies were not necessarily like huge, amazing. I mean, Pretty in Pink made forty million dollars, so it did pretty well. But it, you know, this is not like Indiana Jones. Like, this well, yeah, is a, but a especially by the standards of the day, those uh, right, like Pretty in Pink, those were uh, those were well, 19, I mean, I think, 1986 dollars. I mean, I think I would <laughs> say that the way that these movies have been vindicated by history is probably more important than the impact that they had at the time. Which may not have been as much as we seem to think that it might have been. Right. You know what I mean? Like we see these things. It's like we don't you don't recognize great work until it's gone. Like John Hughes. I feel like nobody really has has come out and said John Hughes was brilliant until John Hughes died, and then all of a sudden A.O. Scott is writing some huge crazy eulogy for him. So uh, and all of a sudden he's like, oh, he's brilliant after he's gone. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I love a lot of those movies. I love the Brat Pack. Uh, they're all good people. But, he's uh, another I necessarily... guy. I mean, like the guys we were talking about. He's another guy though who had a. A trajectory that was maybe more like um, more like Eddie Murphy's, right? He's working on the Beethoven movies. He's ghostwriting or writing under a pseudonym. Uh, yeah. He did Drill, Drill Bit Taylor, you know, um, yeah. th- these kinds of things. Actually, here's an interesting thing. Um, Pretty in Pink came out in 1986, right? So when we think about the 80s, I think we sometimes think about this sort of like new wave style 80s as being independent of the 80s that sort of actually happened in mainstream culture. Um, like, and to illustrate this, let me read the t- list of the top 10 highest grossing films of 1986. And you can gauge for me whether Pretty in Pink is really the biggest thing that's happening in 1986. You've got Top Gun, okay. Crocodile Dundee, yeah. Platoon, Karate Kid 2, Back to School, crazy enough, made $91 million in the box office, which doesn't make any sense at all. Um, the aforementioned The Golden Child, which we should all go see again. Aliens, Ruthless People, which I don't even remember, and still made twice as much as uh, Pretty and Pink did. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Star Trek Four. Wow. Um, so, like, if you think about it, I do think, maybe, maybe you guys can help me out with this, because I definitely think this whole I love the 80s imagines this sort of parallel universe in which only certain sorts of kinds of culture existed, right? And, like, we don't integrate. We don't think, okay, this had to compete for mindshare with Indiana Jones. You know what I mean? With Star Trek IV. Uh, with, yeah. with, uh, with Ferris Bueller, which had largely the same target demo. Yeah, like, if we were recording this oh. podcast then, but we were putting it on, like, an LP, we would be like, well, he also wrote Ferris, but he also directed Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. So, like, when we're saying, I, don't, I won't put Ferris Bueller's Day Off in the same category as Pretty in Pink, which I think he didn't direct. I think he wrote it, right? Yes, um, correct. Yeah. Um, but, because, like, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is sort of a whole different order of thing. But, like, if you talk about the more minor 80s-ish movies... Um, I mean, I forget exactly what I was going to say. No, but the I'm main sorry. Point- I'm sorry, Pete. I, I, I may have not. It wasn't totally clear to me. He wrote and directed Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He only wrote Pretty in Pink. Yeah, he wrote a lot of movies. He wrote Home Alone. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So John Hughes did a lot of this 
stuff. But I feel like we have this sense that like eighties eighties is is happening in this one sort of corner of the universe, which is totally cool, and there's like freaks and geeks and everything. And then like actual eighties, which had like Ronald Reagan and stuff. Like that people <laughs> liked. Like remember, people people liked Ronald Reagan a lot, and he was very popular. In like eighties eighties, Ronald Reagan is this sort of shady character who shows up in a puppet in a Phil Collins video. In actual eighties, Ronald Reagan is like the single most powerful beloved. man in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is beloved by a million. Um, in our, and so like it's tough to distinguish these sorts of things like i I think about i think the one movie that always makes me think about that and and maybe you guys can chime in and let me know what you think about it is uh terms of endearment for some reason um which was like a a big sort of i think of that as the quintessential non-80s 80s movie where like it's it happened in the 80s and it was very popular movie this is uh what is it? It's Shirley MacLaine, and it's like a total chick flick uh, about mothers and daughters, and it's it's a big deal, right? It's a big cultural event, but uh, but I don't think of it as '80s at all, right? It doesn't have any of the aesthetics, and I don't think it would even get mentioned. Um, I mean, maybe maybe it probably would because they've been doing that show so much that like they have to talk about everything eventually, but like it doesn't strike <laughs> me as like flock of seagulls '80s. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Let me let me. Up in here, Pete, for a second. I think one of the things you're getting at here with the John Hughes movies and you know really strongly associating with them with some sort of '80s aesthetic is the music, right? The pop music. That's the uh, part of it. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, but also the dress. Forget about right. But now one of the things I think about Top Gun though is come on, anybody with me here? Down, 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 down. Right. I would yeah. think that right, as the song from Top Gun that I remember. <laughs> but anyway. That's... No, no, no. Yeah, Top Gun is... <laughs> right? Also, Highway to the Danger Zone. But that's Kenny Loggins, right? Also, that actually just brings up a good point there, is that my association with Top Gun is... Down, 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 down. <laughs> You live a sad life. You live in a sad world, Markley. No, he lives in a he lives in a sexy world. That's true. That's true. That's true. He thinks that women are more exciting than fighter jets, which is not true. (laughs) I had I had a uh, high school teacher who, in homeroom, would show us Top Gun ten minutes at a time. And, uh, <laughs> and you, so, had the, you had the best high school teacher. <laughs> oh, no, he was fantastic. And his name was uh, Jesse. Jesse Engdahl was his name. So, Jesse, if you're listening, good on you. But um, so he uh, actually, after before I tell the story, I probably shouldn't give his name. Um, he the first time that a a uh, airplane enters the frame from the left, uh, from uh, the right of the frame, um, it you know it mo- penetrates the side of the frame and then moves in a uh, you know apotheosizes across the uh, across the frame. And he paused it as this this plane, this you know long hard plane, had you know gotten maybe three quarters of the way across the film, and he said, "I don't care." what you think no one's going to tell me that that is not a big erect penis on (laughs) film (laughs) and then he pressed play and we continued watching the movie it was great that that, that, that story went completely the opposite direction which i thought it was (laughs) (laughs) that allows you the opportunity to skip past the steamy sex scene uh that tom cruise and uh, who's a chick in the movie i can't remember charlie 
Kelly McGillis playing playing a girl with a boy's name. Hey, you know what? Top Gun is phallus in Wonderland. <laughs> you know, it's it's really like even the girl, even the love interest has a dude's name. Her name's Charlie. Yeah, but just wanted to complete that thought. So, right, the, 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 what I was expecting was that the the, the teacher would have fast forwarded past the sex scene, but instead, what he does is point out how something that is ostensibly non-sexual is in fact sexual. So, ruthless people, by the way, is a um, uh, is a comedy with Danny DeVito and Bette Midler. Mm-hmm. So, also you know. not what you consider to be totally eighties. Well, you know, Pete, are you talking about like? John Hughes, a lot of those movies, are, at least the movies that are about adolescents, and actually I think uh, something that's interesting is something that A.O. Scott got at in the, in the sort of appreciation that was in the, the art section on Friday uh, of the Times, was, um, you know, he, every so often he stepped out of that uh, teenage milieu, uh, right, in hmm. the Home Alone movies or in the National Lampoon's Vacation movies, but he was never really at home outside of that and he was really at home talking about adolescence and about high school and I think maybe this this sense of like there is this special 80s that was within the, the actual 80s that maybe that's just like the youth culture versus the mainstream culture mm, you know yeah. also his movies are about in a sense are, are all about being an outsider uh, and trying to find some kind of space where you can be yourself. And here I'm, I'm totally stealing this observation from A.O. Scott, so don't, you know, don't think that I don't know that I'm plagiarizing this. Uh, about finding some space where you can be yourself, whether you're Ferris Bueller and want to be, like, unique and cut class, or, you know, or you're one of the Breakfast Club and you, you, you want to be what you are. You want to be a nerd if you're a nerd, but you don't want to be totally hemmed in by that label. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so there's a youth culture that is what, you know, wearing the crazy bangs and the shoulder pads and, uh, you know, the glow colors and the, the plastic bracelets and the leggings and uh, pulling the extra long T-shirts through the little uh, plastic fastener at the hip. Uh, and then there, there's a mainstream culture that is, that is sort of Wall Street, right? When was Wall Street? When was Wall Street? Yeah. A uh, Wall. Let's see. Let's check that up. Nineteen eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. Yeah. So right in the same, right in the pocket of where we're talking about. Okay, I'll shut Oliver up. Oliver Stone is flattered. You call him mainstream, but <laughs> yeah. I guess there's also there's something about uh, all those John Hughes movies that people really remember him for. That's very valedictory. You know, they're all kind of not really about high school. They're kind of about remembering high school. Yep. So maybe that's why they kind of work better as '80s nostalgia movies than as actual. 80s movies during the 80s you know well maybe it's a great example and this is a concept i struggle to articulate in my articles so and maybe you guys can help me out with it a bit too is it's an example of kind of an artistic creation right um the generative power of great art one of the things that art great art can do is it can create things that then persist not just sort of culturally or in our in our society you know but in our understanding of, of the world and give us tools to talk about other things and, and broaden the human experience. It's part of what I often refer to as the artistic project, um, if, I ever, if I ever talk about it like that. Um, I and would, maybe, uh... maybe... Oh, go on. Oh, no. And I say maybe this creation of this, this youth 80s is an element of, like, the capital A, capital P artistic project, like imagining and creating this, you know, this, this sort of, like, epic 
justification for a civilization, you know, way of thinking about humanity. There's a whole vocabulary there, um, and it's sort of a facet that is not necessarily chronological as much as it is, um, you know, um, generative, artistic, um, creative, performative, um, and things like that. What were you saying, Jordan? Oh, sorry. Jordan, I I was going to... I was going to say that I I agree with you, except that I would add that also deeply shitty art can do the same thing, you know? Oh, that's true. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be good. This is a case where great means fat. It doesn't mean good. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that, you know, I mean, Top Gun kind of does that for fighter pilot culture. Kind of, definitely. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Top Gun is huge. Definitely. Top Gun is a huge steel F-14 Tomcat plowing through the fecund air of Cold War Libya. (laughs) I shouldn't say that I think Top Gun is bad, because I think, you know, I mean, obviously, Top Gun is fabulous. I mean that in every sense, (laughs) fabulous. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Oh, man. Jordan, you can be my wingman anytime. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You know, I was thinking thinking of... um, in uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, James Joyce writes about Stephen Dedalus, right? And his, like, his first ambition as an artist, as an artist as a young man, uh, which is, and I quote, to forge in the smithy of his soul the uncreated conscience of his race. Uh, which is kind of like what you're talking about, Pete, in the, in the, in the sense that like, uh, art can show you the world in a new way, or can 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 actually alter through the force of its representation can actually alter the world uh, mm. so that things can't be the same anymore. And you know, it strikes me thinking about James Joyce and John Hughes. It strikes me that both uh, both um, the Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off take place over the course of one long day, right? Mm-mm. And so does um, Sixteen Candles may also. Yep, it's her birthday. Yeah, right. It yeah, starts with her waking up and ends with her going to bed. Yep. Ends with her, yeah, or ends with her, yeah, sp- you know, making goo goo eyes over the cake at Anthony Michael Hall or something. Oh, is that what it is? Oh, well, or oh. that she, yeah, she goes to bed after that, presumably. Okay. I don't. I haven't seen it in a little while. I know there's that t- conversation she has with her dad very close to the end of it. Oh, right? yeah, there, there you go. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 and that actually, I think that that points to something. It points to a kind of like classical structure or a kind of attention to structure uh, in the writing of these movies that, that may be another reason that they endure, right? That they, they really sort of touch on, uh, they really touch on kind of narrative modes that run deep. Mm-hmm. Which narrative modes is that? Is that beyond just the fact that it takes place over one day? Well, yeah, like a, a, a unity of, a unity of time and action. You know, and in the case of The Breakfast Club, a unity of place as well. Yeah. In the case of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, rather emphatically not a unity of place, but hey, what can you know? <laughs> <laughs> a unity of car in Ferris Bueller's yeah, uh, Day Off. <laughs> you know? And yeah. there, um, so let's see, what else did A.O. Scott say? Oh, said that Molly Ringwald was sort of the alter ego. Molly Ringwald was the Bobby De Niro to uh, John Hughes's Martin Scorsese. Wow. Does that make sense? That that like um all her characters have boys' names. Hmm. Uh or at least a like, number like a, Charlie from Top Gun. Well, like Charlie from <laughs> Top Gun, yeah. She's um Molly Ringwald is uh uh Sam 
in Sixteen Candles, and in Pretty in Pink, she's something else. She's Claire in uh, in The Breakfast Club. Mm. But uh, right, so that like, oh, Andy. Uh, short for Andrea, but goes by Andy in uh, Pretty in Pink, and that like that this 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 woman, this young woman, is the, really the stand-in for the male director, which is you know crazy oh. gender bending. I wonder if there's not some kind of broader '80s thing that giving the girl a boy's name is sort of shorthand for making her spunky and feisty and interesting. I I, I would suspect that's probably the case, right? Like Joe from The Facts of Life. Um, right. <laughs> or Joey, uh, you- or Joey Potter from Dawson's Creek. <laughs> well, that was in the eighties, right? Well, yeah, or but Joe it's not- from Little Women. I mean, you know, it's all the same. <laughs> well, Joe from it is all the same as Joe from Little Women. That's probably where it all comes from. Probably uh, is what I would wager. Probably because everyone's reading Little Women. <laughs> I mean, it's out there in the culture. I remember it was the biggest book in my elementary school library, which I resented tremendously uh, that all the girls got to read the biggest book. And no matter how good a reader you got as a guy, you could never read the biggest book in the library because it was Little Woman. And it never occurred to me that I could read Little Women because that would just be crazy. But um, <laughs> right, it's you were reading, yeah, you were reading <laughs> Hatchet by Gary Paulson and My Side of the Mountain and you know the Hardy Boys. I read a lot of Jim Cajelgard, like Snow Dog and Big Red, because they're very long. They're 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 needlessly long books about dogs so i was and then i started reading lots of books about particle physics and stuff because they were also really long books but what we're getting at is that i have some really weird heteronormativity issues that caused me to really like top gun <laughs> this isn't about like could, this is about the 80s <laughs> just putting uh the titles of the movies top gun and pretty in pink in opposition to each other probably Probably reveals something very interesting about our like our psyche as a nation. <laughs> Definitely. Can you imagine having to record a podcast or like an LP radio thing or something in 1986 and having an argument over which was better, Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Pretty in Pink? <laughs> because you were like out at the same time. <laughs> That'd be and, quite a podcast. And written by the, written by the same guy. I I think my Top Gun is pretty in pink. Uh, is that, 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 you know what that is? That's a Quentin Tarantino movie. That's not a, <laughs> <laughs> like when you, when you take the gun, you paint it pink, and it's like sexy and dangerous. That's a Quentin Tarantino movie. I don't think Matt was talking about a gun. In the in oh, the he's talking about his, he's talking about his, uh, his putting on his was his flesh tuxedo, pink torpedo kind of stuff. Smiles <laughs> 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 oh, has a new record. Is that like the? Can we make that like the phallic symbol theme? <laughs> like when we're talking about phallic symbol, can we just go like? That used to be my favorite album. I used to listen to it all the time. Uh, oh man, the, the song they played during the volleyball sequence is the worst song on the album by a long shot. Playing with the boys. Also- there's also like an, yeah, and when I saw that scene after I have not seen it in a very long time, I was like. Wow, there's a lot of homoerotic tension in this scene. Yeah, that scene's just... pretty over the top. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Much over like the as they were as they were going over the top of the net to to, to swat the, the volleyball down. <laughs> Their bodies glistening over in the sweat. T- over the top is another eighties movie. That's that's from nineteen eighty seven. The year of Wall Street. Over the top and Wall Street might have been in theaters at the same same time. How do you pick which one of those you're gonna go see? <laughs> I kinda feel like uh I kind of feel like Over the Top is a 70s movie trapped in an 80s movie's body. <laughs> that is accurate. That is totally correct. That is totally correct. That is brilliant. Definitely. 
definitely. Uh, yeah, so John Hughes, we're sad he's dead. I mean, I yeah. guess he kind of stopped making movies, but he made some very, very good ones. Voice of a Generation, though. He was in, he was uh, of my parents' generation. Uh, mm. He was the voice of the generation, kind of half a generation above us. So wait, when was he in high school? John Hughes would have been in high school in 1964 through 68. I feel like the film studies paper that needs to be written about John Hughes is like, how does all of his movies actually reflect stuff that was going on in the 60s? Mm. I'm sure that people have written that paper, and if they haven't, they should. If you're yeah. in, in some sort of graduate program or undergraduate program along those lines, <laughs> forward us so your paper. paper. give you peer review. Forget paper. Submit it to us, and we'll put it on the site. A lot more people yeah, can read yeah. it that way. Well, right, yeah. I, we, I mean, we have some, some people. Well, not only Jordan, right, who is uh, a cinema specialist, but uh, also our, our guest writer, Andre, uh, is in a video art program at um, University of Chicago. And uh, and more and more. So what else? What else is uh, what else is going on in the culture? I mean, GI Joe. Hey, Thomas Pynchon wrote a new book. Does anyone care besides me? What? Huh? Thomas Pynchon wrote a new book. What's it about? It's about a. <laughs> <laughs> is it about right, a multinational? Uh, for for you kids who don't know who Thomas Pynchon is, Thomas Pynchon is a small is a minor character on The Simpsons who sometimes appears with a paper bag. <laughs> <laughs> He did appear with the paper bag over his head, though he is credited, so I think that's actually his voice. When no, the paper- I, think, I hear he's a fan of the show. He just didn't want to reveal himself. But yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a, he, how would you describe Thomas Pynchon to people who have, don't know who he is? Just that he wrote one really freaking enormous book that's very famous? No, he's written um, a num- Well, I don't know how famous they are, but he's written five or six really enormous books. Right. You know. Right. Well, that's, that's true. Were they uh, Thomas Pynchon is a, is, a, is a post-war American novelist. Uh, who won the National Book Award for his most highly regarded book, which is called Gravity's Rainbow, uh, but is the author also of V, The Crying of Lot 49, a collection of short stories called Slow Learner, a shorter novel called Vineland, a novel called Mason and Dixon, a novel called Against the Day, and now uh, his latest, which is called Inherent Vice. Just to be clear, V by Thomas Pynchon is not the same thing as the miniseries V. <laughs> as the science fiction <laughs> Yes, mi- You would think they were the same, and then you would buy the book, and you would be like, what the F? <laughs> what the F is going yeah. on with V? Just like Mason and Dixon is not the same as North and South. Uh, no, yeah, miniseries. it's not. It's about Mr. Mason and Mr. Dixon in the 18th century surveying the Mason and Dixon line. It's really yeah, good. I, it's a really yeah. good book. I, I mean, I gotta say. Now, of course, I like I'm a, a, a in in a very small proportion of the population in that I've read all of these or most of them because I took a college class where our our task was to read the entire oeuvre of Thomas Pynchon at least as it stood at that moment. Mm. That includes Simpsons episodes that he was on at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was an, that was another class called My Life. <laughs> we should also. I feel like we should also say that Thomas Pynchon is one of these people that um, he's considered a literary novelist. And people who are outside of the circle that read literary novels tend to think of him as kind of a fruitcake. And he he might be one of the people that gives literary novels a bad name. I remember somebody telling me that uh, that Gravity's Rainbow introduces one new character per page of text. So, (laughs) Oh, I would would say, like, paragraph. But they have... um, uh, They have... uh, 
such great names. Like even I'm reading Inherent Vice now. I you know it came out last week, and so I'm in the middle of it. And it um it has like the uh, it has great names like Sledge Potit is the name <laughs> of of one guy. Or uh, oh, in Gravity's Rainbow, there's a um. Uh, there's a law firm, and the uh, the name of the law firm is Saltieri, Poor, Nash, De Brutus, and Short. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's brilliant. That's like taking Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe to uh, to a whole other sublime level. And so, like the the thing that people don't get about Thomas Pynchon is that he's not being serious. I mean, he is being serious about like theoretical physics and and such like, but he's not being serious about these names. It's it's not important that you remember all the characters in Gravity's Rainbow. I mean, a lot of them are just jokes that are that are tossed off. Uh, you know, in the um, in the course of telling the story. But I feel like you could you could argue that this is kind of a asshole move on the part of the writer. That you know you go in All there as writers a, are assholes. Yeah, well, fair enough. But you go in there as a reader, thinking I'm going to read this book and I have certain expectations of what will be done to me. And Thomas Pynchon is somebody who, like, the whole point of reading Thomas Pynchon is that he's going to frustrate those expectations. Yeah, or or, so, pl- or play around with him a little bit. And I think that that's. I think that you can't lay that entirely at his door. I think that that is true of you know the quote unquote postmodern novel. Or the like of like post-war literary fiction generally. Fair enough. Yeah. So I mean, th- that's what I was saying. Actually, is that he's he's of that school, right? I don't lay it at his door, but when you go in and say like, "Oh, Thomas Pynchon is is really really great," you should let people know what they're in for, right? Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. That it's if you and- find that kind of thing annoying, the fact that he's a genius will not stop you from finding all of his books annoying. And it right. doesn't mean that you're dumb. It just means that you find that kind of thing annoying. Well, yeah. It's like um. I, I I read something about uh oh the what is it called Paper Hearts or Paper Heart the Charlene Yee Michael Sarah movie that came out faux documentary mm-hmm. uh, that came out and it it was like well if you like her and you like this kind of twee you know uh, twee quirky thing then this movie will be your cup of tea and and otherwise no you know. And I, I appreciate criticism, film film reviews. It's not really criticism. It's, you know, they're reviews. I, I appreciate film reviews like that, where it's like, look, you know, if you like Juno, uh, you know, you may be into this. That's, Should we that's talk fine. about oh. that? Oh, God, Mark. Yeah, that's all fine and good, except that, you know, again, kind of going back to my whole kid movie thing, right? It's not to, you know, you can't, that doesn't, that's not a substitute for making uh, quality works of fiction, which have wide appeal. Right. Saying that it's a kid's movie does not excuse it for being making it a bad movie. Saying that, um, you know, if you like you know, mindless blockbusters with the lots of explosions and you will like this if you don't, um, you know, that doesn't excuse the, the fact that it is a mindless blockbuster. Yeah, I, mean, I, I guess so. I think wide appeal is kind of a canard in this in this sort of conversation because very often at least in today's market it's taken to mean sort of lowest common denominator and i don't think it has to no 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 certainly not and i think let's clarify a little what we mean by this white white appeal thing and oh this quote will good segue a little bit into the the, the conversation on quirky this so quirk subgenre which um i think we're planning on talking about right is that you know certainly you know, there's a difference between uh, niche 
and um, what's the word I'm looking for here? The difference between appealing to a niche versus just shoving crap out there, right? But that is that is appealing. But <laughs> <laughs> the shoving crap that is appealing Gosh. to the low Thomas. <laughs> I think you just want to limit it. It's not accurate to say that nobody likes Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> like, I mean, his books do tend to sell pretty good. Like, people do like his books. Well, right? people like to put people like to put his books on their shelves. That's true. I have one of his books on my shelves. I've read the first page a couple of times. I really enjoyed it. You know what his books need, though? There's really something missing from his books. And you know what it is? He needs to have a really strong Eddie Murphy in the books. <laughs> what do you mean screaming coming across the sky? I don't hear no screaming in the sky. Yo, crazy. Why are these B1 rockets living in the Blitz? Living in the Blitz in the 70s. Doesn't make no sense. Doesn't make no sense. <laughs> the, I, the, the main wow. conceit, the main, like, the, the big plot, the A plot of Gravity's Rainbow is actually pretty cool, which is that this guy whose name is Tyrone Slothrop. Um, Which would be a great name for Eddie Murphy character. <laughs> like he's already made that character in several movies, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, Can you imagine doing a film of Gravity's Rainbow with Eddie Murphy in all the parts? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that would be the most amazing. With there's like 500 characters, it would be amazing. <laughs> oh man, you got to list that on the the number the awesome things that need to happen but never will because reality yeah. is cruel. Yeah. Oh man. On the Wikipedia page for awesome things that need to happen. <laughs> is there a page? Well, who cares? We'll we'll start one by the end of the episode. <laughs> or well, you, you know, d- if we lit- <laughs> if you're if you're an overthinking it reader, uh, if you start that page, we'll send you a T-shirt or something. But no, you know what? Standing offer. Mickey, I'll um, digress, digress for like two seconds about my uh, the guy who runs Dinosaur Comics once started a, a Wikipedia page for things that exist and another one for things that do not exist. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they, they, they've been deleted now, but it was pretty great while it lasted. Uh, <laughs> All right, so a, a plot of Gravity's Rainbow. Sorry. Yeah, uh, so right, like, um, so this guy uh, puts a sticks a pin in, in a map every time he sleeps with a woman. So there's this map of his sexual conquests and it turns out that that map corresponds uh, exactly to the um to the map of v2 rocket strikes german rocket strikes in london whoa and that like figuring out figuring out why this is occupies some 700 pages of gravity's rainbow but see, to me, this is kind of the problem with it, is that clearly that's not what occupies 700 pages of Gravity's <laughs> Because nobody actually puts pushpins into a map saying where they slept with people. So because, like, it's clearly there as a postmodern sort of wacky symbol, the fact that there's some connection between that and V2 rockets can't be a mystery that you care about. The reason why there's a connection is because Thomas Pynchon thought that would also be a nice little postmodern symbolic what he wants it. Well, and, people, like, people. Hold on. Yeah, yeah. Like if you yeah. if you like if you object to symbols, then I think most of Western art kind of goes out the window. That was the objection that I had. My objection is that in nowadays people definitely do make thorough records of their sexual conquests, and just because the push pin is no longer cutting edge technology, it's not mean it never serves its purpose. If he was blocking about it under the name like I don't know Cato the Elder or, or Max Power. <laughs> Then, then I'd be fine. <laughs> so, if you were making a Facebook app which involved pushing push pins, virtual push pins, into places on the map where people you had slept with people, can we make the Gravity's Rainbow Facebook app? That would be amazing. 
<laughs> oh, put, and then like, oh no, V2 rockets. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying that we shouldn't take it as a given that nobody did that because I don't know that nobody did that back in the 40s. It's entirely possible that people did do that in the 40s because people do things like it now, right? So I don't think, though, that – I mean, having read books like this, although I haven't read all of Gravity's Rainbow, so I should, I should give it you know, a grain of salt, whatever. Having read books like this, though, I don't think that Thomas Pynchon was saying, like, oh, this is something that someone would actually do. He was saying, like, this is cartoonishly weird. Like the name – what was the guy's name, Matt? Uh, what, Sledge Poteet? Yeah, sure. Like the name Sledge Poteet. There may be Sledge Poteets out there, okay? <laughs> Thomas Pynchon doesn't know them. He thought it was funny. Yeah, but like, Zach, it well, is- I don't know. I don't know. Like, well, I, think it, I think a lot of it, it is pretty funny uh, to me anyway. <laughs> a lot of it comes down to whether this kind of thing is your cup of tea or not. I mean, and the thing is, it is for me, as long as it's not also trying to be a mystery. I feel like there's something fundamentally incompatible between the mystery as a plot and like the postmodern wackiness as a style. Now, what if it were just like, you could totally do that story, but you were saying, oh, it can't occupy the 700 pages, but I can totally see a Jack Black movie in which like you occupy a good solid 95 minutes with Jack Black trying to figure out why the rockets are landing near the women that he's sleeping with. I mean, there would be like twists and turns and he'd like figure it out and there would be a crazy villain maybe played by Gary Busey with an eye patch <laughs> and parrots, you know, like, so you could make a story that's like that, right? Like, yeah, but yeah, it wouldn't I... be, it, that movie wouldn't be in contention for the Oscar. You know, and that and Gravity's Rainbow won the National yeah. Book Award the year it came out. Right, 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 right. I need to read yeah. that. I've started it so many times. Uh, hey, I know funny I'm part story. Of- uh, so uh, Thomas Pynchon studied engineering, I think, at Cornell, where he took a literature class where we th- it is thought that he took a literature class that was taught uh, by Vladimir Nabokov, who was teaching there at the time. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. So that like. That's- Actually, and like for like effing around with the reader, Nabokov is another guy, though he's a generation uh, before Pynchon. Like he's another guy who who does that. But his his puzzles, um, the point of Pynchon, like a point that he makes, that is, I think, a point about postmodern life, is that like, look, shit doesn't always add up, you know, right? Like you can't you can't always solve the mystery and like that's it and like it, it's a totally complete thing uh nabokov was that's uh, also actually the message of the breakfast club um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway nabokov was a different thing because he was like a big crossword puzzle buff you know and that like all the puzzles in his books do indeed sort of work out Mm, you know, mm. where it's like there are, there are bits of Nabokov where you think, well, this is kind of a tortured bit of prose. And it turns out that, uh, you know, it's an acrostic, right? If you take the first letter of every word in the paragraph, it spells out something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and that and that like his operate on that level where the where it's like a will shorts puzzle or something well let, let me let me put this out there do you think that there because thomas pynchon i think is really interesting for a lot of reasons one reason is that he's treated as a very serious literary figure but he writes like sort of comedic sci-fi-ish kind of stuff right like alternative history and stuff like that his work is very similar in its oeuvre though not necessarily in its form to kurt vonnegut's work for example right i feel like they're very similar uh spirits in like literary literary but I feel like they occupy very different places um, in people's popular conception. Like, where is the Kurt Vonnegut line? 
where like somebody can be like an out there postmodern writer who like is funny and likable and has like broad popular appeal versus like a, and who isn't necessarily thought of as a great literary figure and is sort of people resent that um, versus Thomas Pynchon who is thought of as a great literary figure does a lot of the same things um, but you know doesn't get widespread acceptance and is sort of resented for being part of and parcel of like well, a here's, I mean here's a, um, among an, a number of artistic continua I think we can recognize one that is uh, the continuum of how much the writer cares whether you get it or not you know mm-hmm. whether they whether they uh kind of are doing it for its own sake and the reader be damned or whether they really are are making a great deal of effort to invite you in and not to- so this would be like the difference between like like james joyce and the berenstein bears is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, those are not exactly the... Um, the uh... Let me tell you, J- the Berenstain Bears go to the doctor is a mindfuck. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know what they do? Do you know what they do? What do they they do? go to the doctor. They go to the doctor. It's crazy. <laughs> it yeah, so that, that, that's a traditional narrative, and what Rather is uh, promoting is a book called The Bernstein Bears Go to the Doctor, where in fact they don't go to the doctor. Because you know what? In, in modern life, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you don't go to the doctor. You know? Sometimes, sometimes you you intend to go to the doctor and end up, you know, talking to a dog. Uh, yeah, you know. and these are these are the harsh truths that real artists should be preparing people to deal with. <laughs> all right, you, you know, mock all you mock all you want. Uh, <laughs> you know. I will, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, like, you know, I would say that it's the difference between uh, between as treatments of crime, a show like Law and Order, and a show like The Wire. I don't know about that. Yeah, right. Like that. That Law and Order is is um, concerned with at every moment telling you exactly where you stand in the story, and there's this great confidence that everyone has uh, that certain expectations will be met by the end of the 42 minutes or however long an episode of Law and Order is. And uh, and with The Wire, The Wire makes absolutely no concession to you getting what's going on. It just drops you in the middle with all the slang and all the stuff and all the, you know, intercutting among the different storylines coming at you, and you have to sink or swim on your own. Mm, I don't know. I would put the continuum between Star Trek The Next Generation and Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. Uh, where in the latter, you're never really expected to know what's happening. Although that's probably not on purpose. Uh, <laughs> and I love making Andromeda jokes. Um, I mean, the, but The Wire does do a, fun, a lot of fun things for its audience to make itself consumable. I don't think that The Wire is quite as alienating as it has a reputation for being, as much as it just wasn't watched that much, right? I mean, I found the show pretty endearing, and everybody I know who's watched it has pretty much liked it, right? Yeah, oh yeah, uh, me too. And it's it's one of those shows that's talked about a lot more than it's, than it's watched by a mass audience. Yeah, I mean, you start talking about shows like Carnival, and I think you're starting to f- talk about shows that aren't making concessions to their audiences. Um, right? I mean, that show I found much more alienating, although I didn't watch that much of it. Um, but it definitely seemed to exist for a reason other than to tell me a story for my own, you know, my own gratification. Were you all there when we uh, when we all got together and, and watched uh, Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension? Oh, that was great. <laughs> now that that movie, I think, is uh, is Pynchon esque in that like 
the stuff in, in the wire yes it doesn't uh, hold your hand but it also makes a real huge bid for realism so you don't have characters named like throb mandingo or whatever right uh you have you have like <laughs> you have, you're you like have stringer names. bell yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey jordan do you like do you like movies like uh last year at marienbad or piero lefou or zabriskie point you know, I've not seen any of those. I like some weird movies. Le- uh, I okay. I don't like movies that um, try to, on the one hand, be uh, very, very self-consciously weird, and on the other hand, try to be, like, action-packed and fun. I feel like they should, well, that's you know, a lot of Well, that's a lot of the oeuvre of Jean-Luc Godard, you know? Did you see Pineapple Express? Did you not like Pineapple Express? I like Pineapple Express fine. Okay. I guess I that know. wasn't trying to be that weird. It was a little weird. I don't know. I mean, its, it's weirdness was more, um, was more engaged with the kind of movie that it sort of pretended to be at first. Mm. It wasn't just sort of surface weirdness for the sake of being weird. As, for instance, in Buckaroo Banzai, this is like a science fiction movie where there's a race of aliens that are all named John. Their last names are different, but their first name is like universally John, and that's weird just for the sake of being weird. And you know, I mean, I, li- I like Buckaroo Banzai, okay, but I wouldn't honestly recommend it to anybody because it's, I mean, it's frustrating in a lot of ways. For for me, the same way that Pynchon is frustrating. I have a little bit of a soft spot for Buckaroo Banzai because, like, you know, it plays at midnight or 1 a.m. on like public access cable or something like that. It doesn't win national awards. there's something uncomfortable to me about people winning national awards for being that kind of like willfully perverse. Yeah. Well, if you ever feel bad for Buckaroo Banzai or you feel like Buckaroo Banzai is not the kind of movie that you should recommend to people, just send them in the general direction of Big Trouble in Little China and then everything (laughs) is fine. (laughs) Yeah. Which is like the same, it's the same writer, right? Is it the same? Yeah. They're they're actually in continuity with each other. There's a deleted scene from Buckaroo Banzai where Kurt Russell's character from Big Big Trouble in Little China is supposed to be like driving by listening to the radio. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've seen Big Trouble in Little China and you're like, what is this? Then you should go see Buckaroo Banzai. And if you've seen Buckaroo Banzai and haven't seen Big Trouble in Little China and you liked Buckaroo Banzai, what the F is wrong with you? Like, why aren't you not watching Big Trouble in Little China? Uh, anyway. Have you seen Buckaroo uh, Banzai? Have you seen Big Trouble in Little China? You should let us know. How do you do that? Well, you, uh, you write us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com. You leave a comment on the show notes. So here's the contact form on the site. You uh, you can call us. I'm wrapping up uh, in case anyone can't. Yeah, uh, we got it. We got it. <laughs> in, in case anyone, in case anyone didn't know. So you know, speak now or forever hold your pee. Uh, uh, call us. What's our phone number? It's twenty eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. And as always, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably doesn't doesn't deserve. What do you mean, no national treasure? I don't see no national treasure. All I see is a whole lot of books. That's nonsense. I want to see some gold. And see some gold. I want to see some national treasure. George Washington, George Washington sent me secret messages. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. Shrek, get me out of here.